0: Some of the stories that we take up this week include the WPP FCPA Enforcement Action. I have a five-part series on the FCPA Compliance and Ethics blog. Mike Volkoff takes a deep dive in corruption, crime, and compliance. Matt and I considered it on compliance into the weeds. Human rights litigation in the EU. Salome Lassamon in the FCPA blog. Board structure is a key Compliance Oversight, David Katz and Linda McIntosh in the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Government, Bringing Clarity to the Chaotic World of the CCO, Chris Odette and CCI, Jacqueline Jaeger in Compliance Week on Another Week, Another Wells Fargo Fraud Penalty in the Multi-Millions of Dollars, Why Do Anti-Corruption Academics Fail, Matthew Stevenson explores in Global Anti-Corruption Blog. Former FCPA unit Dan Kahn heads back to private practice, conquering the last mile in your code of conduct delivery. What is OZ and what does it mean for compliance? And Matt Kelly explores who owns ESG and a great post on radical compliance. All on the Monsterfest month returns on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to This Week in FCPA, episode 271 for the week ending October 1, 2021. Yes, Q4 is here. The Monster Fest month returns. Jay Rosen, uh, Mr. Monitors himself, and myself, Tom Fox of Voice of Compliance, are back to unpack some of the top stories and even bizarre stories that caught our collective eye on the Monster Fest Month Returns Edition. Jay, you're probably going to ask me what monster are we featuring this month on Monster Fest Month? This month, it's The Invisible Man. So look forward to some uh, blog posts about a great universal monster movie
1: star, The Invisible Man. But what say you? I say there's another FCPA enforcement action. Want to delve into WPP and let the listeners know?
0: Sure, Jay. So we had uh, this enforcement action, unfortunately, after we recorded late last week. So uh, lots of commentary this week. I wrote a five-part series. Matt Mm -hmm. Kelly wrote about it in Radical Compliance. Mike Volkoff had a a Triparte series on Corruption Crime and Compliance. Uh, Matt and myself, uh, as always, the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, uh, took a deep dive into it on compliance into the weeds. So it was a really interesting um, FCPA enforcement action, Jay. Lots of bizarreness, lots of lessons learned. WPP, the world's largest advertising agency with annual revenues of $15 billion and over 100,000 employees, uh, did not think compliance was important enough at the company to the point where during the relevant time period they had no compliance function nor a chief compliance officer. So uh, put that on your cultural spin and take it out for a walk. I think that tells you all you need to know. We saw uh, a a paucity of pre-acquisition compliance due diligence leading to um, WPP purchasing some advertising agencies in countries uh, outside their home jurisdiction of the United Kingdom, and uh, we had uh, insufficient controls. We had overrides of controls. We had uh, one uh, in India. We had seven whistleblower reports before WPP even bothered to hire an investigative law firm. Uh, We had one failed investigation early on after the first three whistleblower reports. Uh, We had uh, creative accounting and bribery schemes. We had uh, one bribery scheme where it was funded by an entire fraudulent account uh, of $1.5 billion uh, designed to uh, create the pot of money uh, to pay the bribe. We had bribery schemes in India, Peru, uh, Brazil, and uh, literally across the globe. We had lots of questions raised. Uh, Number one, why didn't they pick up the phone and call affiliated monitors? Because if there was ever a company that needed a monitor, it's WPP. So where's the monitor? Uh, We have no DOJ criminal enforcement action or deferred prosecution agreement as yet. This was an SEC enforcement action. Uh, Why isn't or wasn't the SFO the UK Serious Fraud Office involved because as i mentioned this is a UK domiciled company although there was clear jurisdiction in the United States because part of the bribery schemes were on email servers in the United States and WPP has uh, hold shares in uh, ADRs in the United States so uh, it was really a lot to unpack um I think I mean I'd love to talk to you know Eric or Vin or or you know Rod or anybody about this because Jay this seemed to be at the most basic a not a toxic culture but a failure of culture and the example I gave of no compliance function in the organization probably speaks to uh, this as most and in the acquisitions of these local companies there was a uh, earnout. For the owners who sold to WPP. They were kept on to help run the local affiliates. Nothing wrong with an earnout. It's a standard term and condition in lots of acquisitions. Really weren't mergers, they were acquisitions. Uh, but the uh, earnout provision led to a perverse incentive that Eric talks about quite a bit, <clears throat> where the local owners led the bribery and corruption efforts uh, so that they could earn out their. <coughs> excuse me pay so uh lots of lessons learned here and lots to talk about lots of us talked about it uh i don't know how much you may or may not have followed it but if you have sort of any initial thoughts i'd love to hear them at this point jay
1: i think i'm uh ready to move on to the next story if that works for you tom and uh this comes to us from the fcpa blog written by salome la hope i said that right In Europe, human rights litigation is gaining momentum. Human rights have recently attracted more attention with significant legislation enacted throughout the EU, and major companies have been increasingly targeted by complex litigation for alleged human rights violations. Here are some of the biggest ESG development companies operating in the EU should know about it. In France, duty of vigilance in human rights litigation, adopted in 2017, The duty of vigilance law requires companies to devise, publish, and implement a vigilance plan to identify human rights and environmental risk resulting from their activities and introduce measures to prevent them. It applies to corporations employing more than 5,000 employees in France or over 10,000 worldwide. This one-of-a-kind duty of vigilance is a blatant example of France's determination to enshrine corporate responsibility into substantive law and enhance corporations' accountabilities globally. Lafarge Proceedings NGOs have increasingly targeted corporations for alleged involvement in serious criminal offenses. The most newsworthy case is the criminal investigation against the French cement manufacturer Lafarge regarding its activities in Syria. Allegations concern the payment of 13.5 million euros to a terrorist (coughs) group, including including ISIS and other intermediaries through Lafarge Cement Syria, its subsidiary. This decision sets a strong precedent for assessing corporations' responsibility, including for the most serious crimes. In Germany, human rights due diligence and the first ESG probes, Supply Chain Due Due Diligence Act. Perhaps the most high-profile action against ESG risk so far is that undertaken by Germany, which adopted the Supply Chain Due Diligence Act on June 11th of 2021. The act will enter into force in 2023 and cover German companies with a workforce total of at least 3,000, 1,000 employees as of 2024. The act compels companies to identify, assess, and prevent supply chain risks of forced labors. First ESG probes. On August 26, 2021, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and the German financial market regulators, BaFin, launched into an investigation into DWS, the asset management arm of Deutsche Bank. And on September 5th of 2021, ECCHR filed a complaint against major German retail brands, including Aldi, Lidl, or Lidl, sorry, uh, Hugo Boss, and CNA for allegedly benefiting from forced labor. The EU steps towards greater human rights protections. Directive on Corporate Due Diligence and Accountability. This trend witnessed in Germany and France to foster responsible and accountable business conduct in a in a broader initiative. The EU Global Human Rights Sanction Regime. The EU's lead on human rights protection does not solely rely on enhancing its legislative framework. On December 7th of 2020, the EU adopted Global Sanctions Regime against Human Rights Violations Committed Worldwide. This new sanctions regime, directly inspired by the U.S. Global Magnitsky Act, imposes international financial sanctions and travel bans on perpetrators of human rights violations. In conclusion, corporations should be aware that human rights protection and ESG due diligence are gaining momentum in the EU. And this may be the opportunity for companies to review existing policies and procedures, implement an efficient due diligence strategy, and risk risk map businesses' impact on human rights and ESG-related factors, particularly for exposed industries. Tom, back to you. So Jay, uh, next up we have an article by David
0: Katz and Laura McIntosh in the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. And it's they view board structure as a key to compliance oversight. Jay, so, yeah, we rarely talk about uh, structure as a com- part of a component of a compliance program, uh, occasionally, but uh, this was a really interesting article, and I would really encourage every compliance professional to read through this. And if you're listening to this and you sit on a board of directors, this is really uh, directly aimed at you guys. The critical, uh, or what the authors advocate, is something I've been talking about for a long, long time, which is splitting the compliance function out of the audit committee, Jay, uh, and that the audit committee needs to focus on financial results, financial performance, financial metrics, financial risk. <clears throat> but a broader compliance committee can focus on, obviously, different types of risks. In our world, that could be ABC, anti-bribery, and anti-corruption risk, Jay, but it could also be a safety risk. It could be health risks and the authors specifically pointed to both of those when it turned to Bluebell Ice Cream and uh, Boeing. Boeing, uh, rather, uh, Bluebell uh, was a decision by the Delaware Supreme Court which said that the board's abject failure to uh, look at the biggest risk at the company, and Bluebell was a food Product company. So, your biggest risk is food safety. Um, a listeria outbreak happened and multiple people died as a result of it. And the board, of course, uh, had no oversight over food health or food or rather food safety. Boeing, um, they apparently didn't look at the safety of their airplanes. And for transportation company Jay, you might say the biggest risk is failure in the safety of your products that transport people. And Boeing certainly had that problem in the 737 MAX disasters. So uh, an interesting approach to compliance on the board, it's uh, the structural approach. But then the authors, Jay, ended in a very interesting way, and I'm just going to read from it here. They (laughs) They said, employ common sense oversight. If uh, what is the biggest existential risk to your company? <clears throat> well, if you don't, if you haven't assessed that, you need to do so, and then manage that risk. And that they pointed out that reputational risk is now as great as uh, regulatory risk, and that the company's boards have to do a better job of determining what that risk is and then assess this. So. I know that uh, I've certainly been talking about splitting compliance out of the audit committee for years, and uh, I think this is going to be, have greater momentum going forward. And uh, I look forward to see, uh, seeing more of a dialogue uh, on this uh, point as well. Uh, so, Jay, I talked about bringing some clarity to the board in its oversight of compliance.
1: What about bringing clarity? To the chaotic world of the cco well i'm glad you asked tom uh here's first of two articles from corporate compliance insights and the first article is written by chris Audet. the cco's roles keep expanding these four models can help bring order to the chaos analytics or automation alone don't stand a chance of helping any cco deal with every challenge they face in a business world filled with growing demands These leaders need to personify no fewer than four different models or postures. Which role would depend on the stakeholder they're engaging with, the technical nature of the challenge or threat, and the communication style needed to effectively deliver durable corporate policy. The new compliance mandate. Quite aside from the pandemic-related challenges of prolonged business model disruption, hybrid working vaccine mandates, and huge employees' attrition. CCOs are also being tasked with improving how they deliver guidance to the business. The role itself is also expanding. CCOs are now expected to manage the next generation of organizational mandates, including ESG, CSR, and DEI initiatives, which organizations are increasingly evaluated by investors, the media, and their own diverse set of stakeholders. How do we look at the multifaceted CCO? With growing challenges materializing from all directions and resourcing flat or even declining, it's no wonder that the CCO can't be great at just one facet of his or her role. Increasingly, technology capabilities, while important in meaning the challenge, cannot alone fill the gaps. Therefore, Gartner has introduced a new framework for the modern CCO that incorporates and helps them visualize the four main roles embedded in their position. These flexible roles provide the CCO with the best chance of being able to meet the challenges coming from a variety of different and essential business contexts. First up, the strategic business CCO. This model focuses on providing compliance advice that influences and strengthens an organization's strategic direction. This type of CCO seeks out a clear understanding of business objectives, proactively advises leadership on compliance risk, and provides their own guidance. The second archetype, culture and ethics steward CCO. This CCO model promotes a strong corporate compliance culture to build shared accountability and influence business direction. Specifically, these CCOs focus on reinforcing the organization's culture and changing environment. The tech and analytics champion CCO. This model focuses on supporting technology initiatives to improve risk mitigation outcomes and functional effectiveness and promote technical skills. The model emphasizes a growing adoption of analytics, automation, and artificial intelligence to augment the capabilities of their staff. And the final archetype, aligned assurance CCO. This working model focuses on establishing strong partnerships throughout assurance functions with clearly enumerated risk ownership, accountability, and reporting roles. While operating in this role, the CCO addresses concerns related to stakeholder assurance fatigue and allows for a comprehensive and consolidated view of risks that threaten the organization. In conclusion, there is no way to sugarcoat the challenges faced by CCOs at a time when they have never been more important to the health of an organization and its culture. But by reevaluating their mandate and embracing the needs to pivot among the different roles depending on the context with which they're faced, the CCO has a fighting chance to meet today's demands. Tom, back to you. So, Jay, are you a Wells Fargo Bank customer? Luckily, no. I am a B of A customer legacy from Security Pacific many years ago.
0: Well, that's a good thing, Jay, because Wells Fargo paid yet another multimillion-dollar fine for yet another fraud scheme. This one is in the bank's foreign exchange services, or Forex, where from 2010 to 2017, and that date is significant, Wells Fargo FX sales specialist defrauded over 770 customers by making up prices on currency it was selling and marking down the prices on currencies it was buying. Uh, so that's uh, the spread or sales margins. Uh, the article comes to us from our friend and colleague Jacqueline Jaeger on Compliance Week. And Jacqueline details the uh, fraud schemes used by the Wells Fargo people. But more than that, Jay, it was a complete and total, utter confi- compliance failure because Wells Fargo failed to put any meaningful uh, or effective safeguards in place. There were no meaningful or effective policies or procedures governing this. And uh, the article, or rather the uh, uh, settlement agreement, um, specifically noted the toxic culture at Wells Fargo, no surprise there, where uh, FX employees openly joked about and celebrated taking advantage of the bank's customers. So uh, Wells Fargo, uh, I don't know if you can say they... They didn't get it right. They sure didn't get it right this time. And uh, the fallout from their initial sales, uh, fake sales fraud scandal has uh, continues. Uh, I'm just stunned that, and I mentioned the 2017 date. Well, the significance of that, it was a year after Wells Fargo had their original settlement for their fraudulent sales practices scandal and were under... um, Monitorship. So uh, they continue to engage in fraud in the Forex arena after the settlement agreement. Um, the Fed chair, uh, Jerome Powell, has said in a press conference that the Wells Fargo asset cap place will remain in place until the bank has comprehensively fi- has fixed its governance and compliance uh, deficiencies. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, <clears throat> whatever you may or may not think of her, has called for the breakup of Wells Fargo because they cannot get it right. And uh, Warren continues to be proven correct, uh, as Wells Fargo has compliance stumble after compliance stumble after compliance stumble, a multimillion-dollar settlement for yet another fraudulent activity by the bank. Uh, So Wells Fargo is uh, back in the news. Uh, But also in
1: the news is our friend Dan Kahn. What is Dan Kahn up to, and why is it newsworthy, Jay. Uh, well, this comes to us from the Wall Street Journal's Risk and Compliance Journal from our good friend Dylan Tokar, and uh, it's n- noteworthy because Dan Kahn is returning to private practice at Davis Polk and Wardell. After an 11-year stint at the Justice Department, Daniel Kahn, whose last day was Wednesday, rose from his position as a trial attorney to become its most recognizable expert on the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. As I said, he will return to Davis, Polk, and Wardell, where he worked previously. Since early 2000, the Justice Department's enforcement of the law has led to a string of blockbuster settlements with some of the world's most well-known companies, including Siemens AG, Goldman Sachs, and many others. As enforcement of the law has expanded, law enforcement agencies and regulators in countries around the world have teamed up with the U.S. Department of Justice and the Securities Exchange Commission to investigate and resolve cases of bribery by multinational corporations. Mr. Khan joined the Justice Department's fraud section as part of its criminal division in 2010 and became chief of the FCPA unit in 2016. As he rose through the ranks of the unit, he worked on cases involving French transportation company Alstom and U.S. fashion company Ralph Lauren. In recent years, Mr. Khan held a number of senior positions in the fraud section in criminal division, but he continued to be a key steward of the FCPA program, appearing on panels about anti-bribery law at compliance conferences and at an appeals court hearing involving former Alstom executive who was charged with violating the law. DIN also oversaw teams of attorneys investigating healthcare and securities fraud and market manipulation cases. The Fraud Section, which consists of around 180 prosecutors, is one of the largest teams of white-collar prosecutors in any country. The FCPA has remained the cornerstone of the Fraud Section's Corporate Enforcement Program for nearly 20, uh, 20 years. That staying power derives from the fact that cases are worked by dedicated unit that is staffed and overseen by by career prosecutors rather than political appointees. Mr. Khan said, "I don't see a slowdown anytime in the near future. They are continuing to look at new and innovative ways of identifying corruption. Although the investment of resources may slightly vary across administrations, the FCPA enforcement was consistent through his three administrations that he served under." That was also true under Donald Trump, who once famously called the FCPA a horrible law before he became president. The Biden administration, consistent with past administrations, has made anti-corruption a pillar of the government's national security agenda, leading some lawyers to speculate that the Justice Department may commit additional resources to investigating FCPA cases. Attorney General Merrick Garland in June launched a task force specifically focused on enhancing the department's efforts to combat human trafficking in Mexico and the Central American countries of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. Mr. Khan said he would miss his work at the Justice Department, but remains uh, anxious to continue to play a role as a partner at the firm he previously left, Davis Polk, and being part of their white-collar practice. So, Tom, a very successful career for a fraud fighter. Uh, what's up next in your list?
0: So, Jay, we have an article from Matthew Stevenson, uh, co founder of the Global Anti Corruption blog. And it's a very interesting article about uh, the debate in academia around anti corruption and uh, why um, anti corruption academics sometimes fail. And here, uh, Matthew uh, critiques Professor. Professor Bo Rothstein in a-, a paper that he published entitled Three Reasons Anti-Corruption Programs Fail. And um, Matt takes them uh, really apart one by one, Matthew, I should say. Number one, an unhealthy obsession with definitions. The definition of corruption and abuse, uh, Professor Stevenson asserts, have been around with us for 40 years, and most people, uh, in fact, almost everyone understands that. Two is a misunderstanding and misuse of social science concepts in um, the anti-corruption world, uh, particularly around principal, agent, and other business relationships. And then finally, uh, what he calls, quote, sweeping and uncharitable dismissiveness of prior work and thought. And certainly academics uh, who want to make their name uh, will critique or uh, even uh, try to uh, show how prior academic work was incorrect, and that's one way you make your name. But in the uh, anti, in the ABC world, uh, he finds this to be uh, too aggressive an approach to take. So, <clears throat> I'm the sons of teachers, so I always enjoy a good academic debate. If that's uh, if you're a listener and you like a good academic debate, uh, this is certainly the article for you. Uh, Jay, what can you tell us about uh, conquering the last mile of delivery on a
1: code of conduct? Well, I'm glad you asked, Tom. This is the second of two from Corporate Compliance Insights from my good friend Harper Wells. And Harper says that you need to ensure the last mile delivery of your code of conduct, or if you fail, your message will not be received. Simply having a code of conduct will not mitigate risk on its own. It requires constant upkeep, fresh training, and communication and regular updates. If your code is lonely, your organization may be exposed. The story is familiar. Organizations with a code of conduct suffer an embarrassing misconduct allegation or ethical lapse. As they pick up the pieces, they're left wondering what went wrong. Most businesses have a code of conduct, and many of them put them out online for employees to reference. Employees may be told about the company's code during onboarding or given a handbook or a binder. Some organizations even incorporate the code into yearly training, but usually it's the same experience regardless of who's training or what their unique role at the company is. These approaches unfortunately often fail because they view the code of conduct as static. Check the box document. These struggles are unfortunate because so much may go into the drafting of the code only for it to be sadly ignored. What you should ask yourself, most organizations already have a code and refresh cycles in place, which is perhaps the biggest initial step. The next step is ensuring that the code is working for you rather than against you. Here's some questions you can ask yourself about your code. In terms of accessibility and empowerment, are your code and policies updated and easily accessible? If you have a global print, Are your code and policies localized per region and country? Content and guidance. Are your employees trained on the proper handling of common dilemmas, how to report problems, and where to go? Do employees with management reporting or investigation responsibilities receive receive additional guidance? Measurement and monitoring. Are internal systems and controls working properly to identify and monitor red flags? Does your helpline and other reporting data match the behavioral insights gained from training metrics? Now, here's where we need to focus on the people. Although codes of conduct establish acceptable behavior, highlight risk areas, and support company policies, employees bring all those principles to life. Inspiring confidence and trust in those employees helps ensure that when someone is faced with an ethical dilemma, they know the right choice to make. Here's the proper processes. A culture that relies on people to do the right thing must also have related processes in place to support them. For codes of conduct, this include policy governance, ranging from how the code and its supporting policies are updated to how investigations are handled, and reporting mechanisms, what processes are in place for the company, employees, and managers to report a violation or concern. Finally, here's the focus on the last mile. Ultimately, a code of conduct must act as a guide for employees as they go about their daily work. For that to happen, the code must be pervasive and woven into the fabric of the organization, a tall order if an employee does not see evidence of its principles in their day-to-day work life. For a code of conduct to permeate and inform everything employees do, compliance teams must reevaluate their approach and ensure that people, processes, and systems are aligned. Only then can a cone transform itself from a static, dust-collecting book into an active tool for doing, for reducing risk, promoting culture, and empowering your employees. Tom, back to you. So Jay, uh, we're going to have a new segment on
0: This Week in FCPA where I actually pitch a story to you. And uh, I think as everyone knows, you're a recovering screenwriter, so your job in this is to hear the pitch and then uh, determine whether we could create a screenplay around it or is it just too weird. So, here's the story I'm going to pitch to you today. Uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, a major investor, or looking to be a major investor in a a multi-million dollar startup that's been very successful, uh, has a conference call uh, scheduled with a, a business partner of this company. And the business partner of this company is YouTube. Uh, This company posts videos on YouTube in addition to their own social media outreach. And they are alleged to have millions and millions of YouTube subscribers. And so Goldman wants to do a little due diligence with YouTube. And so they schedule a Zoom call. And about 10 minutes before the Zoom call is to commence... The uh, YouTube uh, senior executive, who is scheduled to be on the call, emails in and says, "Have a little problem with Zoom today. Let's do it the old-fashioned way. Let's do a phone call." So they, you know, can scramble and, and go old school and do a con call. And they're having a con call with the YouTube executive, and uh, his voice turns a little odd. And they began to think that there's some digital altering of his voice. So they conclude the call, and they turn this uh, matter over to Goldman Internal Security, who investigates it, and it turns out that it's not the YouTube executive, but it's the co-founder of the company seeking monies from Goldman. So, If I told you that story and said, hey, I got a great idea, you think
1: we could make a movie out of this, what would you say? It's just too far-fetched, Tom. I just don't see a company going to those lengths to impersonate Google and to go old school on a call. But I have a feeling you're going to tell me something different. Well, indeed I am,
0: because that fact pattern actually uh, was reported this week. Ben Smith and the New York Times uh, and the companies involved were Goldman Sachs, and uh, uh, the, inve- the company seeking the investment monies was one company called Ozzy, and they uh, are social media and uh, uh, additional reporting. Uh, interestingly, as part of their internal investigation, Goldman Sachs actually contacted the YouTube executive, not through his Gmail account that he had been corresponding to him with, but through his real account. And they talked to him, and he said, who are you? I've never talked to you. Uh, so it turned out the <laughs> co-founder and chief of operations of Ozzy impersonated the uh, YouTube executives. Now comes the weird part. That, the first part I told you wasn't weird. Uh, now comes the weird part that uh, Ozzy closes ranks and says, well, uh, our co-founder was having a mental health issue and uh, it's a, it was a one-time event, and it won't happen again. And the board of directors issues a statement that, well, you know, we've looked at this, and we, we fully support the way our co-founder uh, was treated uh, from this event. No report on what the uh, mental health issue or event was. Well, the fallout was literally immediate. Investors started pulling out a uh, top talent that they had hired, uh, one uh, Caddy Collins, Um, uh, I can't remember, I don't know if I got the last name right, but her first name is Caddy, she resigned, she just come over from the BBC, today it was announced the board, uh, chairman of the board of directors had resigned, several investors pulled back, and uh, Jay, uh, you may be wondering, uh, what's the compliance angle here? Well, here's the compliance angle, Jay. You do, you have done background due diligence. You have, you, your company certainly could assist a business in doing background due diligence. Well, now, do you have to, if you can't do a face-to-face interview, do you have to assure yourself you're talking to the right person via, vis-a-vis Skype or Zoom? Uh, what happens if you you know, in an investigation, you've interviewed someone and they've used voice-altering software to impersonate a witness or an agreed party. Um, I can see lot lots of issues from this. And what was the fraud involved by Ozzy uh, having its co-founder uh, perform this call? Is that an SEC violation somehow because it's a defraudment of investors? So uh, we often joke about on this podcast uh, stories that are so weird Hollywood wouldn't even take them. But it's just another case or another enforcement action or another something. So this one really struck me as about as out there as you can get. And uh, I'm not sure if this is uh, life imitating art or perhaps art imitating life. Nevertheless, uh, I think, unfortunately, there are implications for the compliance professional. Their implications for the uh, compliance consultant who may do due diligence. And there's lots of implications uh, going forward. So uh, I'm glad we have this new segment where I get to pitch stories to you because the stories I pitch usually come from uh, some case. So, Jay, what's our final story uh, in our story section on This Week in FCPA?
1: We'll be right back after a message from our sponsor. So Tom, we check back in with uh, the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, writing in his own radical compliance. Matt asked the question, who owns ESG? Should the compliance function also own ESG reporting? Some people are emphatic, no way. Compliance officers are already buried under so much work, they say, that adding a burden as significant as ESG reporting will just break their back. ESG is too new and immature a field, others say, and compliance officers can't divert precious time and resources. Those objections aren't wrong, but Matt believes they might be misplaced. Those are tactical short-term obstacles that the compliance community needs to overcome. That's all they are, short-term obstacles. Eventually they can and probably will be solved, and then what happens? Then we're back to the original question of who should own ESG? Compliance officers should get ahead of that question now before other parts of the enterprise try to answer it for them. ESG reporting is fundamentally about reporting non-financial metrics of business activity to help stakeholders understand the overall performance of the enterprise. Well, that's what compliance officers are supposed to already be doing. They report non-financial metrics of internal reporting, third-party oversight, and corporate culture to stakeholders. It seems to Matt that the compliance function is obviously the best candidate to pick up ESG reporting. But some people might frame ESG another way. Another way to look at this debate is if compliance doesn't own it, who should? What other parts of the enterprise would be better served as natural candidates? Just about every other function that might be plausible doesn't have enough experience. Let's consider pretenders here or contenders. Legal. Sure, the team can craft contracts to compel ESG disclosure, but it has little experience assessing controls. Internal audit. No way. Internal audit could test controls and risks, but it has no experience drafting policies or contracts. HR. While HR might excel at the S of ESG crafting policies and running processes to navigate human capital issues, unfortunately, they have no experience with the E or G. Two more contenders, procurement. They might be excellent at managing your ESG issues for supply change, but it has no experience with internal policies and procedures. And finally, IR, investor relations. Some people out there say that since ESG is reporting about disclosure, then the IR team could run this just like publishing an earnings report. That's just not how it works. IR doesn't run the finance function. It passes along whatever information finance and legal generate. So here's one other question to consider. Matt fears for corporate compliance function is that if they don't take over the ESG function and your large enterprise therefore develops one separately, couldn't that ESG function eventually take over corporate compliance? After all, the G in ESG stands for governance, which is all about assuring that the business conducts itself properly. The specific issues that could fall into the G category include adherence to anti-corruption laws, accurate regulatory filings, proper disclosure, and anti-retaliation policies, to name a few. So if a chief ESG officer is nominally responsible for all that, for both internal operations and the supply chain, wouldn't that mean that the compliance function reports into that person? Because all that stuff is what compliance officers already do. The corporate compliance function as we know it today would become essentially a deputy to the chief ESG officer. Matt's contention is just that compliance officers run the play in reverse. We already have the governance stuff in our purview, and we're already versed in developing processes to capture data for regulatory reporting, so let us take over the ENS as well. That's an argument a CCO could make to the C-suite and board. And it's about leveraging the compliance function's natural skills to paint on the larger canvas that ESG represents. It would also be an effective strategy to position yourself for future advancement, perhaps to the chief operating officer's role or something like that. Bottom line, there's opportunity in ESG and compliance officers might as well take advantage of it before someone else does. Tom, that's our articles for the week. What do we have for podcasts and events? Are you under stress? I am under stress, yes. I'm glad you asked. But what could help me get out of stress?
0: Uh, CCI is Surveying Stress and Compliance. So you sound like a prime candidate for the survey. Henry Cronk has written about it in CCI, and we link to the survey. So now we delve to an interesting topic, Jay, inside the mind of the CCO. Compliance Week is surveying that topic, and we'll report their results uh, uh, next month or so. But we link to the survey as well in the uh, show notes, podcast, and events section. And Ethosphere's World's Most Ethical Company Awards for 2022 are open for submission. Uh, for more information on the application process, check out the link that we uh, have in the show notes. Jay, we've got some great new pods out on the Compliance Podcast Network. Uh, One of the most interesting ones, and going in certainly a different direction, is a yank at Oxford, where I, uh, with my co-host David Simon, uh, we detail his journey as he heads back to Oxford to matriculate for an MBA at Oxford. Uh, We're going to do this quarterly, and we just had the first episode drop as David has just begun his journey. Uh, Jay, I know you're exasperated. Well, uh, I've got the podcast for you, Effing Argentina, where along with Greg Greenberg, the author of Effing Argentina, we explore the current American psyche of being overworked, overwhelmed, overleveraged, and overtired in 11 different stories Greg has written of exasperation. And today, Jay, we have one that I think may be actually near and dear to your heart, one of the most beloved characters in American musical theater, Officer Krupke, makes an appearance in Effing Argentina, and it's in the context of meeting with his agent uh, and pitching a script for a new show, Officer Krupke's Bar. So uh, what do we have? Um, uh, oh, and one more podcast, uh, which dropped today, uh, from the editor's desk, is back. Uh, where along with uh, Compliance Week Editor-in-Chief Dave LeFort, we take a look back at top Compliance Week stories from September and take a look forward. So we talk about the uh, survey they're running inside the mind of the CCO, and Dave gives some of the preliminary numbers that they've uh, gotten from the survey. So uh, check out from the editor's desk. All of these are available on the Compliance Podcast Network. Jay, what do you have next for us?
1: Uh, K2 Integrity's Eduardo Fiora will present a webinar on ESG getting hitched to business and IP strategy from the resilience framework to the recovery path. This will be in a couple weeks on October 14th. As always, we have registration and information in the show notes. And uh, Tom and I invite you to join us uh, along with the top ENC professionals at Converge 21. The premier virtual conference of the ethics and compliance community. It's coming up on October 12th and 13th. Registration and information is here. And why should you attend? Uh, Tom has done some pre conference podcasts. Uh, he speaks with Michael Randrup, Wendy Badger Lloydette by Morrow in the UK and Tom and Philip Winterburn. So there are links to all those. And Tom, I've got a question now. How does a compliance Bible become a bestseller?
0: Well, that's because, or how it happens, is when the author appears on C-Suite Network's bestseller TV. And you can find out by checking out my appearance on that August program. Uh, it's, uh, I've got a link to it in the show notes. And also, it will be cross-posted on the FCPA compliance report on Monday, October 4th.
1: So, uh, Jay, you want to take us home? Tom Fox is the voice of compliance, and he can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And as always, I'm Mr. Monitor. You can reach me at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. So as Tom pointed out, I cannot believe it is tomorrow is the beginning of Q4. But we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 271 for the week ending October 1st, 2021. The Monster Fest month returns. We'd like to thank you for spending some of your week and weekend with us, listening and learning about the events in the FCPA world. And we look forward to seeing you next week when we take a look at This Week in FCPA.
0: This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I have a great new podcast coming out next week on the Compliance Podcast Network, Design Thinking and Compliance, where with my co-host, Karsten Tams, we're going to explore design thinking for the compliance professional. It will post on Wednesday, October 6th, and I hope you'll join us. Also, I hope you will check out our the video pod, Effing Argentina, where, with my co-host Greg Greenberg, we take up 11 stories of exasperation in the modern life. It's available on YouTube and on the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week or this week in FCPA.